we're going to try something today that we've only done one other time during our study of the book of Genesis, and that's tackling quite a large chunk of Genesis in one Sunday. So we're going to be um, looking at a bit of chapter 43, 44, and 45 this morning, which means we'll have some scripture reading in the beginning and in the middle and in the end and all throughout. We'll just soak this baby with scripture. But where are we in Genesis chapter 43 for those who need a previously on? This is your chance. Um, so uh, uh, the great, great grandson of Abraham, Joseph, has been sold into Egypt in slavery and many years have passed and he's worked his way up by interpreting dreams. Now he's the number two in all of Egypt and Egypt has become massively powerful because there's a famine, but through the dreams, Joseph knew that they should save their grain and now they're distributing it. And in that famine, Joseph's brothers who live uh, in the land of Canaan are sent by their father to Egypt to buy grain. When they get there, Joseph recognizes them. He, no, I'm sorry. Yes, Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And so Joseph begins to test them. And he ends up keeping one of the brothers behind and sending them back to get the youngest brother, which is Joseph's full brother, Benjamin, whom he loves dearly. And then they're going to come back to Egypt. And so uh, after convincing their father to let Benjamin go, we pick up the story when the brothers have arrived back in Egypt. They still don't know who Joseph is. And so um, Joseph sees them coming and says, prepare a feast at my house. And so all the brothers go. They think they're going to be trapped. They think they're going to be arrested. And they go and they're seated at the table. And that's where the story picks up. This is Genesis chapter 43. When Joseph came home, they presented him with the gifts they had brought inside, and they bowed down to the ground before him. He asked them how they were doing. Then he said, is your aging father well, the one you spoke about? Is he still alive? Your servant, our father, is well, they replied. He is still alive. They bowed down in humility. When Joseph looked up and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, Is this your youngest brother whom you told me about? Then he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out, for he was overcome by affection for his brother and was at the point of tears. So he went to his room and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. With composure, he said, Set out the food. They set a place for him a separate place for his brothers, and another for the Egyptians who were eating with him. The Egyptians are not able to eat with Hebrews, for the Egyptians think it is disgusting to do so. They sat before him, arranged by order of birth, beginning with the firstborn and ending with the youngest. The men looked at each other in astonishment. He gave them portions of the food set before him, but the portion for Benjamin was five times greater than the portions for any of the others. They drank with Joseph until they all became drunk. He instructed the servant who was over his household 
Fill the sacks of the men with as much food as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the money for his grain. He did as Joseph instructed. When morning came, the men and their donkeys were sent off. They had not gone very far from the city when Joseph said to the servant who was over his household, Pursue the men at once. When you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Doesn't my master drink from this cup and use it for divination? You have done wrong. When the man overtook them, he spoke these words to them. They answered him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Look, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. Why then would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If one of us has it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. He replied, you have suggested your own punishment. The one who has it will become my slave, but the rest of you will go free. So each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the man searched. He began with the oldest and finished with the youngest. The cup was found in Benjamin's sack. They all tore their clothes. Then each man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. So Judah and his brothers came back to Joseph's house. He was still there and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What did you think you were doing? Don't you know that a man like me can find out things like this by divination? Judah replied, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has exposed the sin of your servants. We are now my Lord's slaves, we and the one in whose possession the cup was found. But Joseph said, Far be it from me to do this. The man in whose hand the cup was found will become my slave. But the rest of you may go back to your father in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, speak to us about your word. Father, as we look at this encounter between Joseph and his brothers and what will transpire I'm asking that you open our eyes to see what you want us to know about our relationship with you and what you do and how you're moving in our lives. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, when we looked at the first encounter between Joseph and his brothers, I argued that the whole thing was this big grand test and that what it was meant to do was to make the Israelites who were hearing this story later in the wilderness think of their own experience with God where God is constantly saying to them, I'm testing you in this. This is a test. In fact, I said most of our relationship with God can be understood as a kind of a test And that's a hard idea to wrap our minds around. But God's been doing this from the very beginning. Even before sin entered the world, there was the existence of the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from, a test in the good and perfect garden of Eden. Throughout the story, God teaches the Israelites that every gift they receive in the wilderness is actually a test. 
In fact, their 40-year journey throughout the wilderness is a test. But in relationships, the idea of testing one another doesn't sound good, right? It has a negative connotation. You know, those of you who are married, if you, if you felt like your spouse was testing you, testing your love for them, testing your trustworthiness, you would feel, well, untrusted. You would feel kind of used and abused and manipulated. Tests can feel insulting. They can make us feel like we're not trusted and, and make no mistake. Joseph has no reason to trust his brothers. Of course he doesn't trust them. Of course he's testing them. But when Joseph tests them, it sets the tone for how God's people ought to read the stories. They need to look at Joseph as sort of a God figure in the stories, and they are the brothers. And if we read it this way, we learn much about the nature and purpose of the tests. So we started looking at tests two weeks ago, and now we're going to dig deeper into it and look at the types of tests that we find in Scripture, the purpose of tests, and the end of tests. The types of tests, the purpose of tests, and the end of tests. So, to review, two weeks ago, I'm sure you all have it memorized, but... Um, we were looking at tests and realizing that throughout Scripture, in any individual test, there seem to be two different testers at play. There's God who's testing for our well-being and his glory. And then there's Satan, the tempter, who's using the test for our harm and maybe for his glory. Um, I even said last week that in the New Testament, which is written in Greek, in New Testament Greek, the word for test and the word for tempt are the same word. So last week, I, or two weeks ago, sorry, I spent all this time talking about how God gives us tests and how the words for test and tempt are the same word. And, and we sort of ignored the Lord's prayer at the end where we asked the Lord not to lead us into temptation. And, and then, you know, one person came up and asked kind of a nice question, but no one came up. You know, this wasn't a test, <laughs> but no one came up to me with their Bible open to the book of James saying, wait a minute, uh, have you read this part in the book of James? You're saying tests and temptations are this same thing and that God sometimes gives us tests. But look at what James says in chapter one. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself tempts no one. You know, I kind of uh, contradicted scripture the way I talked about this last week. So let's clear some things up. Okay. Um, this is your chance to test me. Um, let's work this out. So, okay. In the Greek of the New Testament, we're going we're gonna to do a couple word studies today. So if you like that, you know, you're welcome. And the rest of you stick with me. Okay. So in, in the New Testament Greek, the word for temptation can be translated test, but it usually has a different connotation. That word, uh, which is here, is perosmos, and it usually means a, a temptation or a trial. Almost every time this word appears, it comes with an opportunity to do evil, like when Satan 
offers perosmos to Jesus in the desert. And Jesus, us, Jesus teaches us to pray, Lord, Lord, lead us not into perosmos. So James 1 is right. God does not engineer perosmos. His goal is not to trip us up. And that's the goal of a perosmos, to trip us up. What I neglected two weeks ago is the other word in the New Testament for tests. And this one is basically never translated temptation. That word is dokimos, dokimos. This word refers to a refining or a proving process. It can even talk about the character of someone who has been refined. Suffering can lead to dokimos. Similarly, in the Old Testament, there are two different words that can be used for tests. Um, but neither of them are, are usually talking about temptation. Uh, in fact, when Eve tells God what the serpent did after she ate the forbidden fruit, she doesn't say the serpent tempted me or tested me. She says the serpent tricked me. He deceived me, which is the word nasha, and we're not talking about that today. The most common word for testing in the Old Testament is very similar to nasha. It's nasa. I, I know, Hebrew. Um, so when God tests Abraham in Genesis 22 and tells him, take your son up to this mountain and sacrifice him, which is a really tough test, that's a nasa. That's a test. All right. Generally speaking, a nasa can be failed. Abraham could have said, no, I won't do that to my son. You crazy voice in the sky or however God was appearing to him. The other word in the Old Testament for test is bahan, bahan. This, it turns out, is the word that Joseph uses when his, his brothers first come to him in Egypt. He says, I'm going to test you guys. I'm going to bahan you. We looked at Proverbs 17.3 two weeks ago. Um, here it is again. The crucible is for refining silver. The furnace is for gold. Likewise, the Lord tests the heart. That's bahan. Abahan re reveals what's there, okay? So it, is there a difference between Nasa and Bahan? Um, think of it this way. My dad um, was a family practice physician for his career. And when he was in medical school, one of the examinations that he, gave, he was given uh, was he was to be observed conducting a physical, you know, giving someone a physical exam. And the instructor would be in the room to observe. That was a bahan. So the instructor's paying attention to things like, what's his bedside manner? What kinds of questions does he ask the patient? You know, what, what, uh, you know, how does he treat them? What, what recommendations does he give, uh, et cetera? Um, so all of that was to find out what has this guy learned in medical school? And is it being practiced? Is it coming out in almost real life? That is a bahan. However, in the midst of that test that he was given, there was also a nasa. You see, if the medical student walked in to conduct the physical exam and didn't immediately go to that little sink that's in the corner 
of every examination room and wash his hands, examination over, immediate failure. You see the difference? One is showing what he's learned. The other one is like, you can never fudge this one. You've got to wash your hands immediately. Nassau. Interestingly, though, when the, the saints in the Old Testament pray, when King David prays, he asks the Lord for both. In Psalms 26 and 139, he uses this phrase, examine me, O Lord, and test me. Behan me, O Lord, and nasa me. More famously, that verse is translated, search me and know me. You've maybe heard that prayer. It's a famous prayer. David is asking God to test him. And God's people have been using that prayer to ask God to test us ever since. If we're willing, it's a scary prayer to pray. It, it assumes that these tests are a good thing. And that brings us back to James chapter 1, you know, where it said, God never tempts us. He wouldn't do that. He never tempts us. That's a great example of how we can miss the meaning of a verse when we pull it out of its context. Let's look a little bit more at James chapter 1. Here's what a bit more of James 1 says. He says, my brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials. That's perosmos. Because you know that the testing, dokimos, of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect effect so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. Okay, what's going on here? James is grappling with the different kinds of tests. Life throws perosmos at us. But when they come, God slips in an opportunity for our faith to be revealed. Dokimos. James continues, happy or blessed is the one who endures testing. That's dokimos. Because when he has proven to be genuine, he will receive the crown of life that God promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, perosmos, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. That's where the temptation comes from. When the desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Do not be led astray, my dear brothers and sisters. All generous giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of the slightest hint of change. Why did James suddenly start talking about gifts? Because in every perosmos, he slips in a dokimos. He gives the gift. That reveals. Yes, the temptation is given with the intention of your failure. It is. It's meant to destroy you. They're not gifts from God. But within that temptation is the gift, an opportunity to turn away from it, to escape, and to remain faithful. It's sort of the reverse of that med school exam. Right, the med school exam, the big thing was what would reveal what was there. And then the little thing was the chance for failure. Here, the big thing that the world throws at us is the chance for failure. And there in the midst of it is a chance for faith. An opportunity to grow, resist, or escape. 
Paul writes in Ephesians about uh, the flaming darts of the evil ones, of the evil one. What are these flaming darts? I think they're temptations. And so what do we do? Well, the test is, will you put on the whole armor of God? Will you wear it? Okay, I haven't forgotten we're actually talking about Genesis. Um, I promise. Uh, we're talking about Joseph and his brothers. What does this have to do with them? Remember, the brothers don't know who Joseph is. They don't know if his intentions are good. In fact, if you read more of the story, they, they think he's trying to trap them to arrest all of them. Of course they think that in the story. So is this a temptation or a test? Consider the dinner they have at the beginning of our passage. You know, they finally arrive back in Egypt and they've brought the youngest brother with them. And guys, it has not been easy to get the youngest brother. Why? Because he's dad's favorite. First it was Joseph was dad's favorite. Now Benjamin is dad's favorite. He's from the, there's four moms of all these brothers, you know, complicated family. But, um, you know, the favorite mom is the mom of Benjamin and Joseph. And, and, and the brothers hated Joseph for being the favorite. And so they sold him into slavery. And now, many years later, 20 years later, um, the, you know, they have to beg, Dad, just send Benjamin. We will protect him. We'll be with him. And there they are at dinner. And what does Joseph do? He, he sits them in birth order. Uh, somehow, tell, you know, they're all astonished. How does this guy know who's oldest? You know, what order we're in? And then he gives Benjamin, the youngest, a five times bigger meal than the rest of them. This kid is favored at home. He's favored in Egypt. Like, think about the brothers, what we know of them. They're, they shouldn't be happy about this. It's just poking the wound. And then what, is he, what does Joseph do? He plants the silver cup in Benjamin's bags and then goes. And they go, and they, none of them think the cup is with them. You know, they all empty their bag. Oh, and the cup is found in this pipsqueak's bag. This guy who's favored by dad and favored by Egypt. And because and, they can get rid of him with impunity. This is their chance to, to be done with him. Like, they could go back and be like, yep, he's, he's the one. This was the punishment. Sorry, Dad, nothing we could do. I know you're sad, but, you know, now you should maybe try loving us for a change. I don't know if they feel tempted like that, but I sure would. <laughs> why is Joseph doing this? For that matter, why does God give us tests, especially hard to understand tests like this or Abraham and Isaac or, what, or whatever. Well, if James, the book of James and the book of Psalms are right, we have to say the tests from God are a good thing. At least that's what the Bible teaches. Are they? For that matter, practically every time God gives a gift to his people, as we look here at the purpose of tests, or, um, um, every time God gives his people a life-saving gift in the wilderness, this miraculous bread, water from a, a rock, whatever. He says, this is a test. Isn't that interesting? Gifts are tests. When you think about the purpose of tests, you have to first start with, when we see gifts happen in Scripture, what are they? God says again and again, gifts are tests. 
The manna was a test. The dream God gave to Joseph in their childhood was a test. The money in their sacks their first, after their first trip to Egypt was a test. The lavish meal is a test. The gifts are tests. The gifts in the Garden of Eden, all of them, not just the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but all of it is a test. Will you receive what God is giving you? What do gifts do? They humble us. When you really think about it, they humble us. Those of you who are really motivated by, by money, you know why you are? Because you don't want to have to need, need gifts. You want to be able to buy everything you need yourself, right? Gifts humble us. When we reject gifts, it exposes obstinate pride. I'll do it myself. But if gifts are tests, that means, as I've been saying, Tests are gifts. You know, you can just switch the equation around. In our story, the entrapment of the silver cup itself is a gift for what it reveals. You see, tests with our good in mind are catalysts. They spark something. They give us opportunities for growth that we wouldn't have had otherwise. That's just what happens when Benjamin is caught with the cup. The brothers are taken back to Egypt, and Judah speaks for all the brothers and says, what can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has exposed the sin of your servants. We are now, my Lord's slaves. We're the one in whose we and the one in whose possession the cup was found. This is a shocking response. Do you know why? Because they're not guilty right? They didn't steal the cup and they know it. Like, this is crazy, but they go and say, we're all guilty. What's happening here? This is an honest confession. Early on, when they first went to Egypt and things started going wrong, they said, this is happening because of what we did to our brother 20 years ago. And finally, to the very brother they betrayed, they are saying, we confess. We're sinners. We deserve it. The Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke says, confession means to give God glory by acknowledging sin and God's right to punish it. And that's what happens here. We acknowledge our sin and we acknowledge that the person we sinned against has, has the right to punish it. They say, we deserve it. We're your slaves. We deserve it. So Joseph pushes and gives another test, a deeper test. No, no, you all can go home. Just leave the one who stole the cup. But that's the only thing that, jo that Jacob, their father, didn't want. And so our next big scripture reading is Judah's response to that. It's worth hearing. Judah makes a speech pleading for his brother. He says, my Lord, please allow your servant to speak a word with you. Please do not get angry with your servant, for you are just like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or brother? We said to my Lord, well, we have an aged father, and there's a young boy who was born when our father was old. The boy's brother is dead. Uh, he's the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. 
Then you told your servants, bring him down to me so I can see him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves his father, his father will die. But you said to your servants, if your youngest brother does not come down with you, you will not see my face again. When we returned to your servant, my father, we, were, we told him the words of my Lord. Then our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we replied, we cannot go down there. If, you're, if our youngest brother is not with us, then if our youngest brother is with us, then we will go. For we won't be permitted to see the man's face if our youngest brother is not with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife gave me two sons. The first disappeared, and I said, he has surely been torn to pieces. I've not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and an accident happens to him, then you will bring down my gray hair and tragedy to the grave. So now when I return to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, his very life is bound up in his son's life. When he sees the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, in sorrow to the grave. Indeed, your servant pledged security for the boy with my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I will bear the blame before my father all my life. So now, please, let your servant remain as my Lord's slave instead of the boy. As for the boy, let him go back with his brothers, for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see my father's pain. Wow. The purpose of a test is to refine us, just as a crucible refines silver. Just as God himself is the one who put the silver in the earth for the crucible to reveal it, we must say it is God who embeds the character that is revealed in a test, and Judah is a great example. If you remember back to chapter 38, we saw a picture of who Judah was, and it was not good. Judah blames this woman that marries his sons for their deaths, even though it was their wickedness. And, and then he tricks her and lies to her. And then she tricks him, pretends to be a prostitute. And then she gets pregnant by Judah. And, and then, gosh, Judah, you know, who went and visited a prostitute, finds out that his daughter-in-law is pregnant and wants her to be killed for prostitution. Like, Judah's not a good guy. And when she, uh, you know, blackmails him in a holy way, suddenly something breaks inside of him. He says, she's righteous, not me. He's humbled and broken. And now, years later, that same man is standing before Joseph. And that humility is in full bloom. Did you hear in his speech, he literally describes, my father acts like he only has two sons. He has 12, but he acts like he only has two. One of those is dead, and it'll kill him if this other one, something happens to this other one. You've got to let, save my father's life, man. Please. Okay? And then what does Judah say? In fact, even though he's the one who stole the cup, keep me. Keep me in his place. Judah becomes the father of kings. His line will have the kings of Israel and the Messiah will be in Judah's line. It's remarkable what the test reveals. But we can't stop our examination of tests there because tests 
they do have this purpose, and it's good. But tests have an end, too. Let's look at one more passage. Just an excerpt of what happens to Joseph in all of this. In chapter 45, it says, Joseph, he's just heard this speech, was no longer able to control himself before all his attendants. So he cried out, make everyone go out from my presence. No one remained with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. He wept loudly. The Egyptians heard it and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? His brothers could not answer him because they were dumbfounded before him. Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. So they came near. Then he said, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be upset and do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For these past two years, there has been famine in the land. And for five more years, there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to preserve you on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now, it is not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me an advisor to Pharaoh, Lord over all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now go up to my father quickly and tell him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You will live in the land of Goshen and you will be near me. You, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, and everything you have. I will provide you with food there because there will be five more years of famine. Otherwise, you would become poor, you, your household, and everyone who belongs to you. You and my brother Benjamin can certainly see with your own eyes that I really am the one who speaks to you. So tell my father about all my honor in Egypt and about everything you have seen. But bring my father down here quickly. What is the end of tests? When I say the end of the test, I mean its concluding purpose. Where it was all headed all along and where was it going? The brothers finally learn what we've known all along. In these tests, Joseph wasn't punishing them. He wasn't trying to get even with them. He wasn't judging them. He wasn't being vindictive with them. The goal of his tests was to bring them close. That's what the tests were for. Reconciliation. Joseph knew his brothers would not be ready to reconcile without being broken, without being humbled. The tests were a gift. They made the brothers ready to be received by Joseph. They made them ready. And it wasn't their passing of the tests that moved Joseph so deeply. They didn't ace the tests, you guys. They admitted that they had failed in a much bigger way in their lives. That's what moved Joseph so deeply. When they say, we're in a terrible bind, man. Like, you got to help us out. I know, I, I know we did wrong, but you've got to, we are desperate. You Please. And they were willing to sacrifice to pay the price. When they admitted that they had failed the big test of their lives, 
Joseph knows they are ready to reconcile. He comes clean to them, not when they're strongest, but when they're weakest, when they're ready. If they had remained proud, if they had let Benjamin take the fall, if they had gone home and said, sorry, Benjamin, you know, he stole, he's gone, it would not really have been Joseph rejecting them. It would have been proof to Joseph that they would still reject him. That's what he would have seen. Guys, why does the Lord test us? How does he use the trials, even the temptations, the turbulent challenges in our lives? I think at the end of the day, they're meant to show us how to depend on him. What's the armor of God? I referred to it earlier. There's these flaming darts of the evil one. It, it's, not, it's not actually a set of equipment that you become really skilled at. What is the helmet? It's the helmet of salvation, a gift from God. What's the breastplate? It's the breastplate of righteousness, what Jesus puts on us. The, the shield is the shield of faith. The belt is the belt of truth. These are God's gifts to us that we are utterly dependent on him for. The life with him, armed with his salvation, righteousness, faith, his truth, his word, his peace, that's a taste of Eden. That's a taste of heaven. In another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus brings his three closest friends, Peter, John, and James, and tells them to watch and pray so that they don't fall into perosmos, so they don't fall into temptation. It's a profound message. The command is a, a test. Pray. That's the test. Because a temptation is coming. If you don't depend on God, you won't make it through. And that's what happened. They fell to the temptation. They gave in. They betrayed him. Only one person in the garden passed the test, remained awake, prayed all night, placed his trust and his strength in the very will and hands of the Father. His friends failed the test, but he did not. And the end of the test was the same. He did that to reconcile with them and with you. His goal was to bring you close. What people intended for evil, he meant for good. Tests are a gift. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you work so patiently to expose in our hearts and minds what you've put there. Lord, that you give us the grace and then you give opportunities for the grace to show. What a blessing. Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes to see your tests. Lord, we pray with Psalm 26 and Psalm 139. Test me, O Lord. Search me and know me. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the ancient paths. In Jesus' name, amen. On that very night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread 
And when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, Take this, all of you, and eat, for this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What are we doing? We're saying, you passed the test, and I depend on you. And so, brothers and sisters, I would invite you to come as we worship and receive the bread, which is the body of Christ given for you, and dip it in the cup, which is the blood of Christ shed for you. Let's sing and worship as we come.